Welcome to the Rock Podcast. Have you ever heard someone say that they're not into organized religion? Interestingly, our model for corporate worship, the early church, was quite well organized and ran very much like local congregations do today. Here in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, Paul lays out spirit-inspired policies that would guide the church when it came to helping people in financial need. Let's join Pastor Ross now as he brings a message entitled, Organized Religion. Alrighty, let's get started. Welcome you back to your seats. Grab your Bibles. Get ready to dig in. Because if you didn't realize it, you are in a Bible-centered, teaching, loving church. We like to teach the Bible and make the Scriptures the center of everything we do at a Calvary Chapel. That's just the way it goes. So we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We don't skip over stuff. We just teach the whole book because the whole book is inspired by the living God and quite profitable for our um, training in how to live a Christian life. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to be careful before I start preaching, before I introduce the text. First Timothy chapter 5 is where we're going to pick up where we left off. And before we do that, we always ask the Lord for his blessing. So, Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that the scriptures are not from man, but they are from heaven. You used men, and through them breathed these God-inspired words. Lord, we just humbly bow before you, and also bow the knee to do the will of the scriptures to demonstrate our love for Jesus. He who loves me, said Christ, will obey my word. And so we want to obey your word because we love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. It's always amusing to me and a little mystifying when people tell me that they're not into organized religion, especially when uh, it's coming from professed Christians. Now, you know how I usually respond to that. So somebody will say to me, well, You know, I'm not into organized religion. And I say, oh, you preferred unorganized? (laughs) No, God likes to do all things in a fitting and orderly way. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. He likes his religion organized and fitting and in order. Now, uh, what's always strange for me about this objection is that the early church, our model, was very well organized and ran in very similar ways to the local church today. They had pastors. The pastors led them with God-given authority, and they were paid salaries. Uh, Within the church, there were distinct ministries. There were positions and titles. Uh, They had, I'm speaking about the early church from the New Testament. They had budgets for missions and helping with the needy. They took offerings. Uh, The leaders attended church councils. They rented buildings. And really, they had formal church policies in place. And nothing says organized religion like policies. Amen? Amen. Well, they had lots of regulations in place to help guide the ministry. In fact, here now in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, that is the very subject of this morning's message. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is laying out hard and fast policies, policies for this organized church 2,000 years ago in the first century. And these policies for our study this morning will be regarding helping the needy. So when the church wanted to help those in need, they had policies in place. And we're going to read those policies in chapter 5. Now a little context. 
The church at Ephesus had become disorganized. Why? Because they had some false teachers teaching uh, as what Paul called a bunch of nonsense. And because of that bad teaching, the church became uh, disorganized, unorganized, and doing things improperly. There was confusion, division, and it rendered the church uh, ineffective. Well, they were able to do that because the Apostle Paul had been tied up. I mean, almost quite literally, because he had been in prison. But the moment he got out, he came down to Ephesus to save the day, and he used his apostolic authority to oust those false teachers from the platform and ousted them, excommunicated them, and named them, we have their names, uh, threw them out of the church, and instead started to teach... uh, uh, sound doctrine, and and he appointed Timothy as the pastor of the church. He went on, right? But while he was gone, he wrote Timothy a couple times to help him continue to get the church organized. That would be First Timothy and Second Timothy, and that's what we have to know how to organize the church, how it should be running properly. Now. For the context, the immediate context uh, is that Timothy is the pastor, a young pastor of this church, and there's still a lot of correcting that needs to be done. A lot of false ideas were around for uh, many years, and so there still needs, there are areas that need attention. So Timothy would still need to have to bring words of correction, but there was a right way and a wrong way to do that in God's church. Verse 1, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So let's pause there. Number one, uh, how to treat people in the church. Now, you might be thinking, doesn't that go without saying? Well, not necessarily. We all can get impatient. He's a young man. He's in his early 30s. You know, he needs to know how to, if correction is needed, how to deal with people of all different ages and the two genders included there. And so making changes in a church, man, it can be be intense. It's volatile. The church of God is filled with a lot of Christians, but, uh, I mean, there's a lot of emotional things that get tied up in how we uh, do church. Emotions run high, feelings get hurt, but corrections have to come, and policies must be put in place. But Timothy, he's told now, you know, people before policies. So we're going to get to the policies about how to help needy people. There's a whole bunch of policies. But first... Let me tell you, Timothy, how to treat people because it's people first before policies. And so it's perfectly laid out here for us. There's a way to bring about changes and there's a way to talk to people. They're not your people. A lot of churches, a lot of pastors will say, and I know what they mean by that, my people. You know, I don't say my people. I say the Lord's people. I have a responsibility to you, the Lord's people. The Bible says he bought and paid for you with his own blood. You belong to him. And I need, and all pastors are exhorted here, that when there needs to be correction, and there often needs to be correction, it is done in a manner worthy of the object of God's great affection, the recipients of the blood of Christ that makes them his property. You are to speak and deal with them with that in mind, young Timothy. And that's really what's going on here. So he says, first of all, the men. He says, Timothy, you're in your early 30s. You are never to uh, rebuke an older man in the fellowship. Now, the word for rebuke there is what he's talking about. Now, we toss around the word correct all the time, but we don't generally use the word rebuke. In English, rebuke has kind of a stronger nuance than to correct. Uh, 
right? I mean, if you get rebuked, I mean, there's some, something very serious involved, right? This word that is used here is very rare. It's not the usual word for rebuke. It, it has violent overtones. And, and what it means is to strike verbally. It means to beat someone up with words. And he says, that will never happen, Timothy. You will never go to an older man in the fellowship with that kind of attitude. Back him into a corner, lay into him, and and give him a verbal tongue lashing. No way. That's not going to happen. Now, that said, there's a lot of strong language for the opponents, for the wolves, for the adversaries. But now we're talking about the general population of the sheep, the church people. And so here, with an older Christian man in the fellowship, you are not to speak harshly to him. Now, it's not that they are above being rebuked, right? Because 2 Timothy, and I have this for you, 4.2, says uh, part of the pastor's charge, our responsibility is to bring words of correction. Preach the word, be prepared in season or out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So the older man, if he needs to be corrected, he has to be corrected. It's not a question of, is he exempt from being corrected? It is how, if necessary, to bring a word of correction to this man. Now, rebuking people is just part of the job. I have another scripture here in Titus. It says, uh, these things are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. But when you bring that rebuke, it better be in keeping with love, gentleness, kindness, and humility. Humility is a part of the picture. And so uh, God demands respect for seniors. It is a big deal to God. Let me give in a, a good example of dozens of scriptures about being reverent to the aged. Here in Leviticus Rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God. I am the Lord. Oh, these are not Moses' thoughts. <laughs> this is first person, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And he says, you know what? I want you to show older people this kind of respect. Stand in their presence. All kinds of great things are heard about honoring people with gray hair in the, in the, in the scriptures. And so, uh, cover to cover, God just demands respect for seniors. You're to approach this man, not with a harsh rebuke, but exhort him. Now, the word exhort there in the Greek, parakaleo. It's the same word for the Holy Spirit when we call him the comforter. So, the encourager. So parakaleo means to come alongside, put your arm around, and to encourage like a coach. Okay, there's a change that needs to happen. You need some correction, but you come alongside. Not direct like that, not harsh. You put your arm around the guy, and you encourage him as you would your dear own father. Now he says younger men. Now this would include Timothy's peers. Treat as partners, treat friends in the work of the gospel with the same affection you would have for your brother, your kid brother. You know. Now, it's almost hard to talk about siblings and how you would care uh, for somebody like you would a brother because we're so messed up. Uh, <laughs> we have such dysfunctional families and we're like, you know, the way you would care for your brother. You're like, I don't think you want me to care that way. <laughs> Whenever the Bible exhorts you to do something and gives you an example, it's, it's a given that it's an ideal situation, right? And so, you know, two brothers close in age that have a beautiful relationship. That's moving. Well, sudden move of emotion. Sorry, I didn't expect it. But you should just see that. It's so endearing to see two brothers who have the same mom and the same dad grow up together and there's just something about that and he says that is you guys you have the same father you have the same experience you guys are all headed to hell and God by his kindness just looked down and took pity on some people and led you to repentance called you out 
and gave you adoption into this family where you, sh- you share this sibling relationship. Treat these younger guys like that. Here's the spirit of what he's saying. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. He says, brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you've got to correct him. You, you who, should, who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself as you also may be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So what is he saying there? He's saying when you approach somebody to correct them, could you just imagine that, and could you just realize you, you are vulnerable to do the same thing. In fact, you've probably done it. And in fact, you've probably done it worse than they're doing it. They still need correction and you still need to be the one to bring it. But you ought to keep in the back of your mind a little humility, just a little humility to think, you know what? There but the grace of God go I. Do I not know how that could happen? But So if you have that spirit in you, you don't get on your high horse and go galloping over and say, Sinner, repent. You know, you just don't do that, right? Unless you're on television. <laughs> oh, just, lo- lo- just zing them a little bit here and there whenever I get the opportunity. All right. Okay, on, uh, on to the women, the superior gender. Let's just start off right, okay? <laughs> now, this was easy. He said, older women, Timothy, treat like your mom. Think of them like your mom in, in a healthy way. Now, uh, you know, this is beautiful. Listen, let me tell you. Uh, my mom, she was distracted. She wasn't a good nurturer. She had her, some issues. When I got saved in 19, at 19 years old, I went to Christian Life Center in Santa Cruz, you know what? I had a hundred moms. I had a hundred new moms. I didn't have a mom at the time that was nurturing or cared about my salvation or, wow, you, you know, I just didn't have that. But I had a hundred moms. I had a hundred new moms. Oh, I pray for you every day like you're my own kid. Oh, I just, I see God's gift. You're going to be a pastor. Uh, you know, just being a mom. And, and, you know, Timothy, you had a mom. Eunice. And you don't see her much because you answered God's call. You don't see Grandma Lois much anymore, do you? Don't you miss her? But you know what? Those who have left moms and grandmas and dads and houses and careers for the kingdom of God will certainly in this life get a hundredfold mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. That's 10,000% increase. 10,000 moms. That's a lot of mamas <laughs> running around. And through the years, oh, I've been so blessed. I could go on and on for days like I'm doing. <laughs> Buying you stuff, little cards, and remembering you, and, and, and baking you, you know. If I said one thing, I said, oh, you know, oh, I love custard. Oh, man, the custard trays are piling up from these mamas, you know, and I'm not going to say no. <laughs> uh, treat them with the warmth, Timothy, and the gentleness. If, if, a, if an older woman in the church needs a little correction, Think Eunice. Think your mom. All right? How about the younger women? Well, you're 30. You're not married. I want you to think of every woman in that church as your sister. And if that doesn't stop wrong thinking, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) Come on, that was funny. (laughs) No, none of this flirtatious. You think of them as your sister. Man, this is the place where young pastors mess up all the time. It makes or breaks the church. And they think about women. Think of them like your sister. Ministerial ethics 101, dealing with the opposite gender, number one. Perfect the side hug. Gentlemen, the side hug. Here she comes and you're like, whoa, praise the Lord. All right. The side hug, man. What is it about pastors? Come on, man. So this is not in my notes. Surprise. Uh, (laughs) A very good friend of mine left their church because his wife 
got the heebie-jeebies about the pastor, the way that he, he interacted with her. And she told me what was bothering her, and I knew the guy, and I had to agree. I had to agree. So I talked to the guy, talked to the pastor, anonymously. Well, he knew it was me, because I was sitting there. But I'm, I can't, yeah, whatever. You get it. All right, listen. Um, women need to feel safe. You know, all day long they're out in a world with one thing on its mind. The, the last thing they need is to come into God's house, God's house, and have the same look in the men's eyes that have the Holy Spirit in them. You know what? We have something else on our minds. It's called the fear of God. Amen? Yeah. All right, moving on. <laughs> now, it makes sense that he got that out of the way because he said, listen, I'm going to talk to you about policies now. But first, I want to talk to you. God's people are more than policies. We're talking about God's people. Now, let's talk about policies. And since we're talking about women, let's talk about policies about helping women in need, specifically widows. Three to eight. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Love the King James there. Give proper recognition to the widows who are really widows. All right? So that's going to be helpful. Verse 4. Now, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Them's fighting words. <laughs> All right, number one was how to treat people in the church. Now number two, here's how to minister to needy people in the church. All right, so Timothy, when you're dealing with people, you need to be sensitive, number one. Number two, when you're dealing with the needy in the church, you need to be discerning, discerning. Now, in particular, now we're talking about widows. Now, the word just means to be a woman who's bereft. Bereft means just disenfranchised, which means cut off. She has no help whatsoever. It doesn't necessarily mean that her husband has died. It's a woman who finds herself completely alone as well. All right, but the major understanding is, is that their husband, the sole provider in that day, no SSI, no life insurance, no community welfare, nothing. She left alone. This is our widow. Policy 1A, figure out, is she legit? Is she really a widow? From God's point of view, is the need legitimate? Now, it's interesting to notice that before their help, there's going to be some qualifying uh, done. And it's really impossible to overstate the prominence in God's word to help people who are down and out. <laughs> this is very important to God, cover to cover. Let me just give you one of a billion verses about the poor. Deuteronomy. There will always be poor people in the land, therefore I command you, I, first person, command you, me, to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. This is just one of so many scriptures about, if you want to represent me, you better have a compassionate heart for those who are down and out. And that compassion better be practical, like James in the New Testament or John 
who said, how can you even call yourself a Christian if you see somebody in need walk by calloused and don't even reach out to help them? They don't have clothes and they don't have food and you walk by and you can't help them. It's within your ability and you don't. Oh, come on. There's a disconnect here. And so this is a big deal. uh, Also, it, it goes on to say, really, let me tell you this. Orphans and widows become really the poster symbols of this needy, the idea of being needy. Because who's more needy than someone who doesn't have a father to care for them? Right? Or someone who doesn't have anybody, a husband, looking out for them. So orphans and widows are really code for the person who is completely helpless. And so uh, in Israel, there were laws on the books, in the book, about how to help widows and orphans. Uh, in the temple, worship, in synagogues, the Jews knew God wants us to take care of widows and orphans. So it was a nice little transference to the New Testament church. James chapter 1, verse 27, so famous. Religion that God our Father accepts, New Testament, as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James said, listen, Bottom line of being a Christian, you may be wondering, how am I doing as a Christian? Is, I, is this or that? I got to do this or that. He goes, let me just tell you, taking care of people who are in deep need and distress, the bottom line is you've hit the bullseye when you've done that. That's how you know. To sum up, what is my Christian life as far as deeds outward goes? It's taking care of people who, can't, who have nobody to take care of them. To be compassionate like that. And so now, the, James will tell you, take, we'll look after the, the widow, but now Paul will tell you, here's how to do it biblically, to be good stewards of church resources. Now, there were a lot of people knocking at the door for assistance. And so this passage is very relevant because there are a lot of people who think of the church as a place to go when you're in need to go and get some help, rightfully so. But how are we good stewards? And this chapter answers that. So first of all, he says, uh, Timothy, there's a lot of need out there. There's a lot of people who are be knocking at this door. Uh, you need to de- determine uh, who's truly in need. Why? Because they were taking advantage of the church. There were people who were not truly widows, and they were had to be investigated and proved out because there were people, hard to believe, that this happens, that they were taking advantage of the church. I've been doing this 35 years. I could tell you a 100 stories of how the church gets taken advantage of. Pastors will err on the side of helping. But I'll tell you what, there's so many times when the church is just taken advantage of and in that regard. Let me just tell you, one that's just been happening. A a young woman puts on a a burqa, a Muslim garb, and she comes to our church asking for for donations because she's homeless. We've caught her in several lies, and other pastors in the community know that she's scamming. It's all a scam. Now, she's, she comes to our church. We t- we've talked to her. We've helped her first, and then we found out. So then we stopped helping her because she's lying, and then she stands on the sidewalk. As you leave, she's begging, and a lot of you have helped her. And I'm here to tell you, Uh, to ask the question in light of the scriptures, is it really helping somebody who's not legitimately in need? That's the point of our scriptures here uh, this morning. So the first line of defense to determine if she's really in need is is God expects children and grandchildren to step in and, and take care of their aging parents. Family has the first obligation. And notice this here. They should repay them. Wow, a sense of moral obligation, a sense of significant uh, debt incurred, you see? And uh, doesn't it make sense? If your mama, if mama 
If mama finds herself in, in need one day, who better to step in and help than the ones who benefited from their sacrifice, from her sacrifice and care? And it says, this pleases God. You know, we had Grandma B, Barb's aged grandma, in our home for her last days. It meant some restrictions in our family and some changes. She was praying over our kids, over the church ministry. She was, that household was blessed to have her in there. And she passed away in Jordan's bedroom. It, it, was, it was such an honor. She had served the Lord 90 years. She got saved when she was seven. 90 years of serving God faithfully. And we got in there at the last second. Barb, of course, doing most of it, you know. But what a, a blessing that was. Family's the first line of defense so that the church, listen, so that the church can help those who truly have no other resources. And just in case anybody doubts how serious God feels about the family obligation, he says, a man who won't provide for his immediate family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yikes. That stings. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit's saying, atheists and vile people by nature take care of their families. You don't want to mess with Guido and his family. Now, Guido's not a nice guy, right? But don't mess with Guido's wife or kids. Are you going to end up in a concrete slab somewhere <laughs> under the Brooklyn Bridge? Why? Because even Guido gets it, and you're supposedly filled with the Holy Spirit, and you don't get it. That's what he's saying. You know, I did a, a, a little ghoul about birds. Birds. The mom and the dad bird work together to build the nest. They work together as she's incubating the dad bird brings her food. That is incredible to me. And when she needs a break, he sits on the eggs. <laughs> That's unbelievable to me. And they stay together and raise the kids and protect them. And they have all kinds of ways to protect them. You know, if, if something's coming, the mom or the dad will get down on the ground and, and act like it's got a broken wing, right? Like, come and get me, come and get me. And the, the dumb dog or bird comes over. And then it just flies off like, ah, oh, psych, you know. <laughs> How big is a bird's brain? How big? It's not very big. It's about this much. They got it down. We take care of each other. Sheesh. All right. Ah, while I'm spinning my wheels, I might as well tell you another story. I'm at a coffee shop. A guy's got... Bibles and concordances and curriculum all spread out. Now, that is a signal. It's saying, come talk to me. <laughs> to me. <laughs> right? So I go talk to him. I'm talking to him about the Lord. And he goes, oh, man, pray for me. My wife and I just got into a huge argument. She's so mad at me. What's up? Well, we've been, I've been out of work for a few months. We had to move in with her father and mother tiny little space and and I went out and I said I'm going to the coffee shop to do my Bible study and she got all defensive and all angry and she was just yelling at me and saying I said yeah she should have been just during normal business hours bro you should be pounding the pavement not opening the Bible alright and so I turned him to this verse and he started to read it and I said no I want you to read it out loud it just works so much better. <laughs> and so he read it out loud. Why don't you show your devotion to God by, by, by putting your devotion into work and finding work because that will please God more than a hundred times a Bible study. Your family's in need, man. Come on. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, 
So is she truly alone? Are there other avenues available? Are, are people taking advantage of the church? You've got to figure that out, Timothy. Ferret out any abuse and make sure the need's legit. Number two, quite surprising, is she a Christian? What? All right, let's talk about this. Here's the situation. Two groups of women in the, in the church. There were the godly Christian older women who were unable to work. They were older than 60 years old. They were legitimately in need. And then there were the worldly widows who were generally younger women. They weren't walking with the Lord for the most part. They were causing trouble in the church. They opened their homes to the false teachers. They were spreading their ideas. They were gossiping, as we're going to see. They were straying, backsliding, some of them not even saved. So, Fair to say, uh, both groups wanted support, all right? So fair to say, initially, somebody comes into the church, they need help, they're hungry, they need food, they're going to get it. However, in this situation, the word is enroll to officially recognize widows. There was a roster that widows went on that got a weekly stipend from the church for life, For life, the church would support a widow. The line was long. The line was long. There was abuse to get on that list. And the Holy Spirit's going to say, there are some qualifiers for those who will enter into a contractual, official, financial relationship with the church of the living God. There will be expectations. There will be accountability. Not to get help. Not to come in and just get help. You get anybody come in and get help if it's legit. But if you're going to get on the roll to have an ongoing year after year relationship where you're being supported by the church, ah, Timothy, we got to separate that out. And that's what he's talking about here. So he says, policy 2A at Calvary Chapel, Ephesus, only Christian widows are going to have a long-term financial relationship with the church. So he says, number one, verse five, is she a believer? And he just defines what he means. Does she put her hope in God? That's a believer. Is she always praying? (laughs) That's a believer, right? So he's saying, Timothy, God wants to answer those kinds of prayers, that kind of woman, and he could use the church to do that. Use your hands. You know, this reminds us of the gal Anna in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we had a gal there, right? She uh, saw the Lord Jesus Christ as an infant, and she was telling everybody about him, but she was married seven years. Her husband died, and she was an exception as a young woman, very godly. She was a widow for 86 or 84 years. And she was in the temple giving glory to God when she saw Jesus uh, as a baby. You know, Simeon said, this is the Messiah. The Lord showed me this Messiah before I died. And Anna just went uh, ballistic, showing everybody, come see Jesus, and just a beautiful woman and example. That's who we're talking about. She made a little nook in the temple. She lived there. And everybody wanted her to live there because she was a blessing. She lived in the temple. That's who we're talking about, Timothy. But there's another kind of widow in line outside at the church kiosk signing up. And we've got to talk about her in verse 6. But the one living for pleasure in the Greek, for the one living for pleasure even though living has died. This is the understanding that the younger women, let's say she lost her husband at 30 she just falls away from Christ if, if she knew him at all, drowning her sorrows with worldly pleasure. And Paul says she's dead. She's dead, spiritually speaking. When you give yourself over to sin, the Bible just calls that to be dead in sin. Uh, Mark uh, or Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And so the husband's gone. She's found herself. She, she tuned into Oprah. She listened to, and Oprah told her, hey, now that the husband's gone, man, it's all about you. What makes you happy? 
It's time to live a little bit. You were kind of living for your husband. You lost yourself in that relationship. You need to find you. Who are you? Ah, and Jesus said, when you find yourself at the expense of me, you've lost your soul. And Paul says there are women who have handled this in a way that have entered into spiritual barrenness, man. And it doesn't make sense to continually support them with church funds, right? I mean, a person who doesn't even acknowledge the Lord isn't seeking God, but is seeking self, living in ways that's spiritually destructive. Yeah, it's okay. They come in. They need immediate assistance. We immediately help them. But you don't put them on the list for a lifelong membership of support with church funds. That's called enabling. All right? Bad behavior. She doesn't have the opportunity to feel the consequences of her bad decisions and put that together with the need to change and to become alive and serve the Lord and seek him and not her own uh, self-centered pleasure. Luke chapter 15, what up with the prodigal? The prodigal, nobody intervened. He became in need. And it says, he began to be in need, and I'm quoting, but nobody gave him anything. Ouch. What if somebody said, hey, you know, kid, you're bothering me. Here's 20. Go down this. And kept stringing them along. The harsh consequences and the hunger and the death of that situation was the evangelist that preached to him to to get back with the Lord. Because of his hunger, it was because of his empty stomach that nobody was filling that brought him to his senses. And he said, he woke up one day starving to death. Here I am starving to death. Duh, what am I thinking? I'm going to go home. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to say I've sinned. I'm going to do what it takes to fill my stomach. But the person who's always bailing that guy out, you don't love him. You're enabling him. You're indifferent. You don't care. Get out of here. I don't want to see you. I don't want to deal with you. Here's a 20. Here's, here, I'm going to take care of you that way. Maybe God wants this widow uh, to feel the emptiness of her life and to turn to him from spiritual death to find life. And he says, Timothy, don't get in the way of that. Don't get in the way of that by putting her on a list where she can be continued to go down the wrong path and with church money. Keep going down the road that ends in a cliff and and we're going to fund that for you. Timothy, no. No, 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 no. Don't do that. All right, let's finish up. One last paragraph. Now, no widow, he's just elaborating now. We're we're on to it, okay? No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds such as bringing up children and shutting off her cell phone, showing, (laughs) whoops, did I say that? Uh, That would be a good deed. (laughs) Helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. I love you, mom. All right. The mom thing. She's not really my... Verse 11. As for the younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. No problem with that. I'm going to explain this to you. Verse 12. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. I'm going to clear that up. 13. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle, going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow the devil. Now, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them 
and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now, does that sound familiar, that last verse? It ought to, third time, third time. When God repeats things like that, we've got to pay attention. All right, so number three. Timothy, you've got to enroll the older godly women, and you should not enroll the younger godless women, and here's why. So further criteria, standards by which to judge. Yeah, judge. He's saying judge. Now, now maybe one of those widows would say, hey, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Oh, well, we're being told to judge your life by your works. Jesus said, stop making wrong judgments. A wrong judgment, by the way, is a rush to judgment. You don't have the facts. You're proud. You have a critical spirit. You're really negative and censorious about the situation. That's judging. Just condemning them. You don't even know anything about it, and you're just like out to get them. That's judging the wrong way. Judging the right way is like Jesus said, there's a tree. You want to know what kind of tree it is? You look at the fruit and you'll know. A good tree has good fruit. A bad tree has bad fruit. An orange tree produces orange. If it tells you it's an apple tree, but it's growing oranges, you know something's wrong, all right? And so really he's saying, Timothy, you need to be a, a fruit inspector. And he's, gonna, he's going to say, this is who you need to support. So policy number three, she should be about 60 years old, this godly woman, all right? What he means by that is not a hard and fast rule, 60. 59, you're out. No. (laughs) 60 was code for 67 in our language, or 62, early retirement. 67's legal retirement age. 60, back in the day, was retirement age. Let the woman be older and technically in retirement age. All right? Why? Well, there's some reasons for that. Uh, she's not prone to problems of youth. You know, with, with maturity, uh, physical maturity, comes a sense more of uh, more responsibility and more wisdom, usually, or should be the case. And uh, she needs to be older if she's going to be supported by the church. And here are some reasons for that. Now, she's gonna say, he's going to say, and like I said before, make sure she's a believer. And verse 10 is all of these evidences. So in case you want to look in her life for what, it, what a Christian would be like, here is the list. Verse 10. He says, he says, number one, she's been faithful to her husband. Yeah. I mean, that's a good sign that she's probably a Christian if she's not a cheater, right? Uh, number two. Uh, she has a good reputation. So you can ask anybody in town about Eunice. Oh, yeah, she's always carrying a Bible. She's always talking about Jesus. She's always doing good deeds, right? She's a good reputation. Number three, she was a good mom. Oh, interesting. Now, by this, we know this isn't a hard, fast checklist because there were some that didn't have kids. So he's just saying, hey, let me give you some examples of Christian behavior that you should be looking for. Also, a good mom, meaning she, she was a good Christian mom. She, raised, she did her best to raise the kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, if she knew the Lord. I mean, sometimes you're talking about people who came to the Lord after childbearing and childbearing ages. Every commentator said the same thing about this verse. And by the way, the language they said means that it can also mean taking in orphans to her home and raising them as her children. Now, what happened was, is here she has a house. She has some extra room. She's by herself. Kids were often abandoned, more so than even today. And so what these Christian widows would do is they'd go out and and take these kids in and raise them. And that was their ministry. So Paul's saying, God, duh. (laughs) This is the kind of woman the church can say, we want to enter into a contract with you. We're going to take care of you because you qualify. You're a Christian. You represent them. Not only that, but as an official relationship developed between them and the church, they represent the church. 
out there in the world. So that is another reason why they were looking for character and, and Christian evidence. Washing the feet of saints just was an idiom for washing the feet. You know, they all needed to have their feet washed because they wore sandals and it was dusty and dirty. You entered a home, you'd have the servant who would pour water over your dirty feet in wash basin. You all know about that. But it also became an idiom that meant the humble serving. So does she humbly serve? That's the kind of gal you want on the list. Uh, Helping those in trouble, devoted to good deeds. These are things that Christian women do. So make it church policy. Make sure she's of retirement age. And that, really, there's enough evidence in the court of law to charge and convict her of being a Christian. Really, essentially, that's what he's saying. Now, finally, he says, refuse to enroll the younger women for two basic reasons, Timothy. Number one, they don't handle celibacy very well. All right? Now, they're in their 30s, and here's where some clarity is needed. They're in their 30s. With time, well, they have signed up to be celibate a widow who needs the help of the church. So they vow, I am a widow, I need the support of the church for years and years and years, and I will not marry. I will devote my life to the church. They're 30. Paul says, in time, nature takes over, folks. You know what? They're 30. They're not 60. Their hormones are working. They want romance. They want to be married. Here's what they did. They wanted to be on the church funds. They wanted to be married. They became promiscuous. And they fell into sin secretly because the body, it was normal. They want to be married. They want to have romance. They want a companion. And so, but they want the money. They want the support. They want to be the widow being taken care of. And so you... Paul says you're putting them in an unnatural position and setting them up for failure because in due time, sensuality happens as it does. And they break their commitment, what? They break their commitment to Christ not to be sexually intimate before they're married. That is the judgment that comes upon them, not that they want to get married because he's going to suggest that they get married. So how could it be that there's a problem that they want to get married? That's not what the judgment is about. It's the judgment about marrying and they would marry outside of the Lord. Their whole Christian life, causing somebody to be celibate when they should not be celibate, opens the door to a host of problems. And that's what Paul is saying. It's just not fitting. It's not right. It's not helping them. It sets them up for all of this trouble. So they need to, uh, let's avoid them, avoid that problem by counseling younger widows to marry a Christian man, settle down, raise a family, uh, and have a productive life. This is a wiser course for younger women who find themselves Alone, And the second reason, the second reason you're not to put the younger women on the list because they are misbehaving. <laughs> they have a bad reputation. Um, and it, it's right here in verse 11. Okay, so these gals have too much time on their hands. Uh, they're getting into gossiping and being idle. In the Greek, it says they're flitting from house to house. Now, every commentator brought up the false teachers because later in Timothy, there's a connection between the widows and the false teachers. They open their homes. They're lonely. And these guys were teaching and showing compassion and using the widows. And the widows were, the young ones, were buying into it. And so uh, they were spreading from house to house. They're, they're spreading the false teachers. He goes, and we're going to fund this? We're going to fund them. And, and they're part of the problem in the church. And they want us to fund them while they're going from house to house, spreading and talking about things that they ought not to talk about. Wow, that's not, uh, that's not going to happen. And so a young woman who loses her husband should marry 
uh, fill up her time with noble tasks, family activities, not idleness, uh, managing her home well. Now, listen, this is interesting. Once the policy is in place and enforced, and the young gals who become widows, they know there's no money at the church for me. That just closes the door, and they turn to finding a husband. It's helpful to them. Instead of saying, hey, there's money over here, sign up, free ticket, free meals for life. They're 30. They're going to do it. And you're setting them up for failure because they're not designed to be celibate. Everything about them is screaming, husband, kids, mothering, being who God made me to be. So shut that door so they know well, I'm not going to be a widow at the church. I'm not getting on that merry-go-round. I'm not doing it. So I'm going to be open to seeing who God has for me in my life. I ran across, well, I've got a quote here, I should say, that kind of wraps it up. It's just a paragraph, but it's really well said. Um, Here it is for you, okay? Now, just as God's forgiveness is conditional, listen, based on repentance and eternal life is given only to those who trust in Jesus. So too, Christian charity has its boundaries and conditions. We must think before we give. We must evaluate the person, the situation, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the command in God's word. We are to give But are we funding the person's next beer or drug purchase? Are we giving away church resources to someone who's just too lazy to work? Are we enabling someone to continue in self-destructive and godless behavior by rescuing them out of something God wants to confront them with? The command to give is to be held alongside the command to be wise be good stewards. This discerning process, almost done, must happen and at the same time keep a soft and passionate and generous heart toward the needy. Needy. The meaty. <laughs> Guard yourself from becoming cynical and jaded. Jaded just means hard. Like, oh yeah, they make more money than me. That's jaded. All right. <laughs> be willing and compassionate but smart. Are you able to do that without throwing the baby out too seriously? Or have you lumped all almsgiving into one category, the ripoff artist? We have a command to be compassionate and giving and lending to the, to, to the poor, giving to the poor and needy, taking care of these people but to be wise about it. Let me close with something that just happened to me. Last week, we went to the city, San Francisco. Barb and I, on our day off, we like to eat Chinese food and wander around aimlessly seeking a new antique to buy. (laughs) Well, yeah, never mind. (laughs) Well, we like Union Square, too. And uh, I was down there. We were walking down to where the cable cars start down there. And I was all excited talking about this is where somebody really got me close to the Lord. I was 19 years old. I said, Barb, Barb, I'll show you exactly where I was standing. I was all excited. You know how I get. (laughs) And there was a Woolworths there. It's not a Woolworths anymore because there's no such thing as Woolworths, right? Well, and I was leaning against, this isn't even part of the story, but I'm telling it anyway. <laughs> I'm leaning against the wall, and I got my leg up like this, and a guy, a young man with an open Bible, he spotted me. There was a whole crowd, and he, he came over to me, and I'm telling Barb, and I'm standing here right here leaning on this wall, and he, uh, he, sh- he said, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your personal Savior? And I went, no, but I have a funny feeling I'm going to and because my dad had just started preaching to me and my sister, and why did you pick me out of the whole crowd? Well, I'm telling her the story, and then we walk around where the 
cable cars are. We're walking back up. We're just enjoying ourselves. And a guy gets in stride with me, big, tall guy. And he's got two belts in his hands. And he says, "Uh, brother, you want to buy a belt? You want to buy a belt? First of all, the belt looks really long, (laughs) you know. And and he goes, you got to buy a belt. You got to buy a belt. And we're walking. And I'm like, (laughs) okay. I said, listen, are you hungry? He goes, yeah, I'm hungry. I said, I, I, I'm not going to buy any. I'm not going to give you any money, but I will buy you a sandwich. You want a sandwich? Oh, yeah. I love a sandwich. There's a Subway right there. You want to go to Subway? He goes, yes. Okay, great. I can do that. Barb, and, and there's a store right there. And I said, Barb, I'll meet you in that store. So she, Barb went ahead, and I walked with him. We got in a Subway. The long line. So there was lots of time to talk. <laughs> so I said, hey, ha. What went wrong with your life? He goes, oh, I had a hard life. I go, I know, I bet. Chicago, mother and father, drugs, prison. I said, and you turned to alcohol, huh? He goes, yeah. He goes, by the way, my name is Red. I go, hi, Red. I'm Ross. Ross from The Rock, you know? And he goes, oh, you're a pastor. And I said, yeah, I'm a pastor. I said, you know, now she's asking, cheese, well, how long, and all of that, you know. So I, I'm saying everything. Just get him every, anything he wants, and he's getting more and more. <laughs> no, you know, and then cookies, yes, two cookies. Cokes, yes, a couple of Cokes. Chips, yeah, get a whole bunch of them, you know. And then he said, will you throw in a beer? And I go, Red, the very thing that's destroyed you and taken a perfectly good human being and brought you to your golden years walking around holding belts going, you want to buy a belt so I could get a beer? A wasted human life. It went straight in. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) And he said, you know, yeah. He goes, you're right. You're right. And then he did something that made me cry when I told it first service. He put his head on my shoulder. He's a big guy. (laughs) And I could feel the weariness in him because he just got nailed. And I said, listen, Red, listen to me. Look me in the eyes. You do not want to wake up in hell after you've had a life of hell but you're headed to wake up in a place worse than this. And he said, I don't want that. And I said, listen, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Look at me. It may be the last time you ever hear this. And he goes, I'm listening. I said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You could do that. It's just Jesus, right? I said, Red, listen to me. You don't need the rehab before you do this. You don't need to get rid of the beers. You don't need to, to get sober. You could call right now in the name of Jesus and you'll get saved before the guy in the three-piece suit in the Ferrari in the financial district. He whizzes by, he's on his way to hell. But you, a beggar who ruined your entire life and still want to do it, you could be reigning and ruling with Christ forever and ever if you just turn to him. It's not hard. I'm not talking about rehab. You could get saved right now the way you are. He's like, I like that. I said, let's pray. Let's pray. Look at me. Let's pray. I'm like, look at me, man. <laughs> he prayed. You know, who knows, right? We've been dealing with a lot of this all through our years, right? You never know. But you know what? That's better than not praying. That's better than cussing me out, okay? That's better than taking a belt and trying to do something. (laughs) Right? So, listen. I will not get hard-hearted and cynical about giving. I will err on the side of being smart and doing something. I'll do something. If it's within my power, I will do something. But I won't be a bad steward. If I smell alcohol, there's no way. You're not getting it. I'm not buying you your next beer, but are you hungry? Can I pray with you? Can I go buy you a jacket? Oh, we have so much fun when we go to the city. There's a guy with 
dirty, dirty, ugly feet and they got sores. And I just went into the Ross. He was right in front of the Ross. I got him just went white to the sock department and got these big, fat, cottony <laughs> white socks that I personally love. Moms, don't, do not. I don't want any socks. All right. <laughs> And I went out there and I said, dude, put these on your feet. They look cold. Oh, he bought, well, I got way more out of it watching him put the socks on those feet. I was like, I was ecstatic, right? Instead of walking by and thinking some stupid, hard-hearted thing about this guy, right? There is something I could do. And even if they're lying and deceiving us, they're still in need. <laughs> just how to be smart about helping them in the way that will best help them. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, that there but the grace of God go all of us, Lord. Oh, we just pray that you constantly rebuke us in our hearts about our bad attitudes and self-centeredness and lack of compassion. Lord, we have so much work through us. Help us to take these truths and apply them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.